and unsurpassed penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Berkeley Zen Center. Good morning, Luminous Heart. Good morning. I'd like to introduce our speaker today. Luminous Heart began her Buddhist practice in 1987. Her first teacher was Thich Nhat Hanh, with whom she studied in Plum Village. She led a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha in Los Angeles for 10 years and later joined the Zen Center of Los Angeles, where she resided for 11 years. She was Shuso, supporting her teacher, Roshi Egyoku Nakao, in 2009. She relocated to the East Bay in 2016 and joined Berkeley Zen Center, where she has served on the BBC board and currently is a member of the Here and New Members Committees and participates in the coordinating group for Many Communities One Sangha. Luminous Heart is a retired clinical psychologist and a retired hospice chaplain and will be giving the Dharma talk today. Welcome. Thank you, Ross. Is this good? Yeah. Good morning. And a special welcome today to those of you who are here for the first time and a special welcome to those of us who are not here for the first time but continue to come we are all welcome so when we're asked to give dharma talks at the end of a dharma talk somebody asks what is the title how do you want your dharma talk to be titled so they can file it in some way or however. So as I was mulling about that, I couldn't decide whether the title would be Grace in Practice or Trust in God and Tie Up Your Camel. So let's see what emerges. Let's see where it goes. So really, my exploration this morning is on grace, which interestingly enough is not a word easily found in Buddhist literature. Uh, if you look in indices of a hundred texts, you may find grace in the index maybe once or twice. And trust me, I did a lot of looking. A few articles, one from 1967 in Tricycle, mentioned or spoke of grace. So it's interesting that it's not a word we tend to use frequently. So I spoke with a few teachers, Roshis, with a few priests to ask them their understanding, meaning of grace in practice and with lay people. And uh, so it's been quite a lovely uh, process for me to go through. So I was raised Presbyterian and uh, 
Grace is a very frequently used word in uh, Christian traditions, uh, and uh, it's central in, actually in Christian theology, the concept of grace. So everybody knows the old hymn, Amazing Grace, but not everybody knows the origin of this, of this hymn, which is interesting in itself. It was written by a man named John Newton in the 19th century, and John Newton was a captain of a slave ship. He brought slaves, carried slaves to the States on, the, on his ship, and he himself was a slave owner. And uh, he had some perfect storm experience at sea and somehow managed to, with the help of his everybody on board, to find a way to bring the ship limpingly to uh, safety. And for him, that was a turning moment. And so he, a grace, what he called a grace moment, and uh, he gave up his ship slave trade work. He freed his own slaves. He became a minister, actually, and eventually an abolitionist. And he wrote Amazing Grace uh, when he had become already a minister. Uh, and so the words, the words of the hymn really indicate a point of view that was held that um, God graced, gave grace to, and you could say parenthetically, undeserving sinners. He, he graced us no matter who and how we were being. So the first the first verse, which you all know, I'm sure, is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, and now I'm found. T'was blind, and now I see. So this is one understanding of grace. So to begin to feel into grace from a Buddhist perspective is challenging in a way, because grace is by its very nature, it beyond definition or beyond descriptors. It's a little bit like the proverbial finger pointing to the moon. It's very hard to, it's this, process for me in speaking of, of grace, because there's an element of mystery in it and its workings. And at the same time, as Katagiri Roshi titled one of his books, you have to say something. So I'm saying something. So grace is a felt experience of, of opening. It's like a 
Uh, it is a shift, something that opens in us or surrenders or releases and there's a change, there's a clearing in that moment. It is not something that we can do or will or make happen. And we know this moment in zazen practice when we have that experience that Dogen described as the falling away of body and mind. We know that moment, that experience sometimes, which may only be for a moment of boundlessness, of full spaciousness, of non-separation. We know this. We are, we come into grace in that moment. Just to bring home grace very specifically to our Sangha and in this time, we've just come through a period with our abbot, Hosan, starting in mid-December, where he was hospitalized and at risk of life virtually uh, for a period of time and then in a coma and there was no clarity, no knowing at that time what what the future would bring or if he would be able to be of return in any way. And in that time of very, it was very painful for people, very sense of impotence and anger for some and great fear of what might happen, a lot of pain and concern experienced by the Sangha. And in that time and all the way through, the, the medical teams of doctors and nurses and medical specialists in various arenas were giving their very best effort toward Rosan's healing. His family were steady, patient, loving, constant in the face of their own fear and suffering. And the Sangha, in that time, stepped forward in innumerable ways. <clears throat> so people learned new positions, people made soup, people <laughs> made visits, people cleaned the Sanalki household. <clears throat> Chanting services were held, extra prayer services were held. <clears throat> there was this stepping forward, <clears throat> sorry, stepping forward on the part of the whole Sangha. So in this time was along with this pain and fear time, an unknowing time, was this coming together, this creating ever more the fabric of this Sangha, interbeing, interconnecting, intersupporting, so that the fabric has been hugely strengthened in this time 
we could call this grace. So grace is manifested, takes form in, in many myriad ways. One example that rose up for me is I have a, my first friend when I moved here from Southern California, well, very beloved to me, and as she is dying of pancreatic cancer and is, it's, she has well outlived her all the predictions and diagnoses, but is now coming to the end of her time here. And she asked me, he was a dancer. He's very delicately built and now even more so delicately built. Uh, and she has an enormously strong spiritual practice. She's an anthroposophist and her her teaching is very guided and she is quite at ease in her process of dying. But she asked me in the late fall, she said she was missing being out in autumn and she wanted to go out. So we went, we did go out, we laid down blankets underneath a tree that had already shed most of its leaves, but not all. And we just were lying under the tree and we could actually watch. Sometimes we could see the moment where a particular leaf would loosen from the branch and start its dance to earth. Um, and there was a slight breeze, so you could actually feel the process and see the process. And each leaf coming down came down uniquely. There were no two that did the same dance, some pirouetted and some, some resulted and some, they danced down, some plunged to earth very directly. And we just were in silence watching and feeling the descent, the ease of it and the beauty of it. And at a certain moment as we were lying there, a leaf fell, a brown leaf fell right into her hand. Um, and we were quiet together for a moment and then she turned to me look, looking at the leaf and then at me and just said, yes. That felt like grace. Let me get this a little higher. Okay, so my favorite time of the week in this Sangha is Monday mornings because I love way seeking mind talks. They're my most favorite <laughs> event. So, wait for those who may not know, way seeking mind is when somebody from the Sangha shares their journey so to speak, how they, how they came to practice, how they came here to practice. And no two stories are anywhere near alike. They're very unique, just like the leaves falling, very unique. Um, but there is, a, there is a common element that I experience as I've listened to the, to the talks. There's some sense in each talk of somebody, the person speaking, having 
followed uh, some kind of a call or some sense of yearning that went past regular daily, their daily lives, something past that, perhaps not named by them, perhaps not recognized directly in that way, but some, something that was like a through line of yearning, a call in that sense. Um, so the telling of each journey has many, many threads, and it's sort of like um, following the breadcrumbs in a fairy tale in a very real sense, but some sense of guidance, but also of um, yearning is the word that I want. Some, some pull that needs to be responded to. So I call this divine, in my languaging of this, I call this divine yearning. Sojin Roshi said that Suzuki's training led him to understand that what brings us to practice is our inherently enlightened mind. That is, that we are at one level already enlightened. Sojin further says that we tend to confuse the concept of no gaining mind with having no aspiration or goal. And he corrects that to say that gaining mind is really associated with a selfishness or a self-centered seeking. I'm quoting him, enlightened practice is to stop seeking enlightenment and to practice for the sake of practice which matures oneself and others as well. So, with this inherently enlightened mind, once we are here in Sangha, in practice, we may have the sense of recognizing something that's already somehow familiar to us and true and trustworthy, even if we don't fully understand that yet. There's some sense of recognition of, the, of rightness, truth. And we do our zazen practice in a regular way, a faithful way, we can say. And then openings happen. There is this experience of the falling away of body and mind. And what develops over time, I think, is a trust, a trust in the Dharma and in the very practice itself. So that in, somebody used the phrase last week, I think it was Jerry talking about, we place our heart upon faith. I would say we place our heart upon practice and in the Dharma. So there is a connection between yearning and grace. The Persian mystics, Kabir, Rumi, Hafiz, 
and more. Speak, use the language speaking of the beloved and a yearning to become one with the beloved. We have a different languaging for what the beloved is, but nevertheless, they speak of this yearning to become one with the beloved. And they speak sometimes in sensual and close to sexual uh, languaging. They, uh, they speak of caressing the beloved, of kissing the beloved on the mouth. And we could say from our languaging that they're speaking of or describing this yearning for oneness, this yearning that we have that we may not have a name for, for oneness, for non-separateness, for this spaciousness that we can touch into some of the time. So Hafiz, there are many of these poems, but I picked a short one from Hafiz on this topic of yearning. He says, we are like lutes, once held by God, being away from his warm body fully explains this constant yearning. I'll say it again. We are like lutes, once held by God, being away from his warm body fully explains this constant yearning. Even if we aren't fully aware of it yet. So from another quarter of the world, this is T.S. Eliot, Christian practitioner in his time, who wrote this extraordinary poem, which I recommend to you to read in its fullness, uh, The Journey of the Magi. Magi. And he is, uh, so he is describing the Magi, the three kings, three, three kings of Ari and Dar, bearing gifts, those people. He's describing them coming from their kingdoms of luxury and power and let's make it up here, dancing girls and wondrous foods and power in general. And each of these three from their kingdoms are called, we'll say, or follow some light. They follow the star apocryphally, but they're called to this in some way, some yearning. And he starts the poem by saying, a cold coming we had of it, and goes on to describe the journey, this journey where they're traveling through climate zones that they're not accustomed to into countries where they're not necessarily welcomed in their process. Mosquitoes, uh, camels rebelling, camel drivers running away, a journey, a, a, a challenging journey, following this light. And they eventually then come to the, the uh, oops, I just undid myself here. Oh, that's why. Thank you. My arms is good. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they eventually come to the stable, to the light. See this new light-filled babe. 
they offer their gifts, and then they are returning home. Oh. And Eliot ends the poem with this phrase, we returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. And the death part has many layered meanings, but one of them, of course, is this dying of the old and letting go of, or that, <laughs> the death of this old way of being, and, and in effect, that's not undoable, and, and that's recognized once, once it started. So we can say that yearning fuels our journeys. We have the, we leave the safety, the familiarity of what we've known, what is what we call our homes, what Joseph Campbell called leaving the castle, but we, and, and however we do that, we, there's a leaving process that takes place. If we talked about this in a secular way, because this is in our language, not even talking at the spiritual level, we, we know these phrases like, uh, you can't go home again, or how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? We have this in our thinking, in our, in our language. So at the level of our way seeking here, there's a recognition, I think, in us all of some dissatisfaction or dukkha I, and this yearning for what is or what is beyond what we can even define. So however it is that we come here in our way seekingness, we come, we arrive here to practice and we do practice. Hopefully, to whatever extent we can without gaining mind. And then there are these moments of arriving home into an experience of the absolute, of the unboundaried, of the spacious, and even if briefly, and I would call that being graced, we are graced, we are in graced. Now to the trust in God part. Okay, so trust in God and tie up your camel. This is for me, if I didn't have any other definition of practice, this is my definition of practice. Trust in God and tie up your camel. Get to it. So, according to the Islamic scholar Al-Tirmidhi, this phrase is attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, who at some point, apocryphally perhaps, saw a Bedouin leaving his camel without tethering it, not tying it up. And so Muhammad queried him about this, and the Bedouin said that he was placing his trust in Allah and therefore had no need to tie up his camel. And Muhammad replied, trust in Allah, 
and tie up your camel. <laughs> so, when we come to practice, I believe what we're doing basically is tying up our camel. We study the precepts, we study the paramitas, we study various wisdom texts, we read books, we study together in various ways, we chant, we do daily zazen practice, and when, even when it feels too difficult to do it, we do it. We may decide to take Jukai to, to commit into a process of following the precepts. We do our best to understand and take on the peacemaker, three peacemaker tenets of not knowing, bearing witness, and appropriate action. We open to try to see what is wanted what is needed in this moment, and we step forward as well as we can. And then we surrender. We release control, or the illusion of control. And then we continue to practice, not in charge of grace, and hopefully available to grace when it comes. So our practice is tying up our camel, which feeds into our openingness. So here the, the trust in God and grace are a fine connection for me. So in many of us, probably most of us have heard the prayer that is said in Alcoholics Anonymous and in anonymous programs throughout the world, the serenity prayer, which certainly fits here, it seems to me. God, fill in the blank here for yourself. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of practice as pointing ourselves toward the North Star. So we use our intention and our goodwill and practice and then when we fall off that trajectory, when we fall off that path in some way, we turn toward it, we let, allow ourselves to see, to adjust in some ways, perhaps to atone if that's needed, and then we place ourselves back on the path again toward the North Star. Arrival is not the point, rather the depth of intention and practice. So just as we say in our vows, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them. This is sort of like the North Star in a way. Still, we keep on practicing, doing our best to embody practice, and then we surrender to the rest. So this is how we tie up our camels in our practice. 
As for the trust in God part, I've been enjoying reading Sojin's book, and I found in this sentence, of, two sentences that just enchanted me, he said, we are breathed by the universe. Everything, breathing, sorry, breathing is just happening. Let me start again. We are breathed by the universe. Breathing is just happening to you. This is a wonderful mystery. <laughs> so when I read this, it made me laugh because we use the phrase, I'm breathing. Is she breathing? We say. And it sounds as though we're sort of in charge of the breathing process. So when I read this, this cartoon came up in my mind of sort of the opposite of that. So, okay, Penelope, breathe in. Okay, not Penelope, breathe out. Like this. So we're running the machinery of the breathing process rather than this wonderful, we are being breathed by the universe. And even here and just now, we are all breathing together. We are being breathed. We don't have to do anything but receive the breathing. We're being breathed by the universe together. We could call this grace. So we have practices within our practice that support us in the process of surrendering and entrusting, sort of trusting in God, so to speak. And one of those practices is our vowing practice. That's a, that is a, a total opening and acknowledging and releasing all holds and entering the Dharma, entering the space, entering that process. That's a surrendering to that. Even our basic zazen practices of being with the breath when we find ourselves thinking, which we all do, and then there's this moment of, as Thich Nhat Hanh referred to it, we come back to the home of the breath. This is actually a practice I use all the time, so when I'm in a wandering mind place, that I simply use that phrase, return home, and come down fully into my breath again, over and over. So I think that moment when we go from thinking, we're in thinking moment, and we become aware that that's happening, that moment, I would call a grace moment, because it enables us to release and come back home. Those are moments to me of grace each time that happens, and there are many, of course, in a day. So some of us in the Sangha write poetry. I do, too. And you may have had, or writers may have had this experience of when you write a poem, you're crafting it, you have this idea kind of where you want to go and what wants to be said, and you're doing that, you're crafting, changing the order of the sentences, picking out something, adding something, and you're crafting and working. And sometimes a quite wonderful thing may emerge from, product, so to speak, may emerge from that process. 
And sometimes there's this experience where you're writing and all of a sudden a poem comes through you and it's very clear you're not writing it. It's just, it arrives and you're sort of the scribe putting down the words that are past you, but are up, come through you. Um, musicians describe this often. So when they're playing music that they've played often, including when they playing a rift that they have played before and rehearsed. So it's familiar terrain and good, and they're doing it very well. And then there are these moments sometimes when they may start a riff or an improvisation and the music takes them and they are virtually not in charge of it. They're just sort of following the, following the music, being led, so to speak. Sometimes grace comes to us in a chastening or sobering form. So, uh, and, even, and when that happens, sometimes it's difficult to identify the experience as grace. So for some of you who uh, have been in Dokusan or meeting with, a, with your teacher, uh, if your teacher has gotten to have a sense of you, know you well, I've had this experience with my teacher who sometimes will say something very unadorned, very, very difficult to hear. And it's sort of like the sort of Manjushri arriving uh, in the middle of you, so to speak. And it sort of shocks your system almost. It's so <gasps> waking up in a very strong way and it goes in very deep. And you may know someplace in yourself that there's a truth here, even if you can't quite get a hold of what it is yet. And this is also a grace, these forms of teaching that are so clear that they cut through all the dross and you just receive the, the teaching and are changed, hopefully. So what prepares us? for moments of grace. So I believe that we get signals of grace all the time and we don't see them or hear them necessarily until we there's some awakening or some opening or some readiness in us. Just in the same way that we speak of that we're already enlightened, but we don't know this, we don't operate from that place necessarily. Nevertheless, it is thus. So the work is to, so to speak, is to continue practicing in good faith and to grow into that knowing that grace is there and is always there. Not on our time schedule, but is always there. Even as we are already graced, we are graced, even if we're not fully aware. And we don't do this grace. We can't make this happen. We can't will it. We can't force it. We can't assert, I will be graced. I'm doing all this practice. Where's my goodie? I want some grace here. I want me some grace now. We can't, it doesn't operate like that. It's that we, in right time, are graced. It comes this way. 
not that way. It was this way when we looked in. So, one more thought here is to connect. Oops, I'm over time. I wanted to connect, I wanted to connect grace with gratitude because I think it's an important piece of this. So I'll say it quickly. I'm quoting from an article in Tricycle on Grace, yay, called Let Grace In. And the author is David Dharmavida Brazier. And he says, grace is a circular blessing. The more grateful you are, the more easily grace seems to enter. Grace is a circular blessing. The more grateful you are, the more easily grace seems to enter. And then he suggests practices for that coming into awareness. My, my personal idea with that is to have an intention to be open, to be aware of grace moments and shifts as they happen. And as a practice, perhaps learning how to name them, not always catching them, but when one does, to be able to say grace, grace or grace. Thank you. Um, I'm going to say one more quick thing and then I want to stop. When just as I was preparing this talk, I had so many memories and moments and experiences that rose up of how I have been graced in my life. And I mean, in, in general, but also more specifically in terms of this journey that we are all on together at some level. And out of the many, this one came up, but there are many others I could have said. I was a clinical psychologist, and when I was getting ready to close down my practice, it was about a four-year process to stop teaching university to stop supervising and to not take new clients. So it was about a four-year process from soup to nuts, so to speak. And then there was this open space, big open space. And right just then, I had to have some major surgery. So I had that surgery. And then was I was living at the Zen Center in LA. And I was in bed for a month and then so healing. And a very dear friend of mine uh, came to visit as I was now up and about somewhat. And he had been in chaplaincy training for two years and telling me almost every day about his adventures and how much he loved chaplaining and so on. And I was listening and supporting and guide for him. On that particular day, he came in, he was all dressed up and I asked where he was going and he said, I'm going to a luncheon chaplaincy luncheon, and I said, can I come too? And I heard myself say it, I'm like, why am I even asking this? But he looked puzzled and he said, sure, I guess so, why not? And so I went to this chaplaincy luncheon and listened to a talk by a clinical psychologist talking about Kubler and Voss, which is fairly familiar to me for me at that point, but it was a very nice luncheon and I talked with chaplains afterwards and then uh, the head person who supervised a vast terrain of chaplaincy training, etc., came over to us and John introduced us. And this chaplain said to me, what brings you here? 
And ordinarily, I'm socially trained enough to say, oh, well, my friend John invited me and I thought it would be nice to come and I could have done that. But I was virtually, it was one of those moments where I could feel that that was not going to be the answer. And I finally said, she, what brings you here? And I said, I have no idea. And she held out her hand and she like it to take my hand, it's very clear. And she said, come with me. And an hour later, I had entered the chaplaincy program. <laughs> because she saw, she lasered in and just cut through the dress and saw what I was not yet seeing, but was many people had said to me before, but I wasn't ready to hear until I was ready to hear. And then it was so obvious, it was so true and so right, and it changed my life. Uh, coming into chaplaincy was a, a great grace and gift for me, for which I'm always grateful. So I think I want to stop here in the time we have left. I want to um, invite anyone who has thoughts, questions, experiences of grace. Thank you. I'm so moved by your talk and you represent grace to me in so many ways, gracefulness, full of grace. And um, I'm grateful for you being here. And, um, my my mother-in-law, Gordon's mom, was Madonna Grace Edgebert. And she married my father-in-law. So we I never knew she was Madonna, or it was something sort of mentioned with some embarrassment, but Grace was what we called her. And whenever uh, we used to go to the little Adirondack church that some family friends, and she would sort of sw help swell the throng, and that was a very odd, different experience for this Jewish Buddhist. So, uh, but I could follow sight read music well enough to do that and they were they had good voices and they would sing amazing grace and she just winced <laughs> and, and that and my uh, former son-in-law who died in december is one of his sisters sang amazing Grace, the first verse, or try at the graveside. And I, um, so I have a lot of, I just love grace. I love the topic, and I love my mother-in-law, and, and I love what you have to say. I feel like I've been sort of cracked open by your talk and your poetry. So thank you. Uh, Ellen Spoon and Ellen. <laughs> oh, okay. You're muted, Ellen. Can you? Oh, I, you I hope that. Hi. I just, I'm sitting right outside your apartment. Oh. <laughs> I, I feel like Grace is what brought me here today. But that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 
sorry, yes. I don't know your name. Kaya. Kaya? Kaya. 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 Hi, hi. Um, my name is Aya. This is my fourth time to be here. Thank you for having me here. Um, so I'm very beginner for Zazen. Very, very beginner for Zazen. So can I ask you a very beginner question? Yes, we're kind of, we all are, it's okay. <laughs> You're in good company. Um, so um, I'm reading the book of Suzuki um, Yoshi, Shoshin. Um, so during the Zazen today, I thought too much about it. <laughs> um, so I understand that um, practice is important. And so you know, this is my first time. <laughs> Uh, so I have to continue to understand. Um, but in Buddhism, I understand that um, a attachment, shujaku in Japanese, creates suffering. And attachment to anything, um, good or bad, you lose or gain, Sometimes we don't notice that attachment until something happens. Then it will shock you and don't know what to do. Then emotion takes you over. Um, so I thought that, that doing the Zen will help me out. But reading the book, it seems to be you shouldn't expect. <laughs> No expectation, no achievement. You just sit there. I don't know if this is, I don't know this is a question. I'm just wondering. <laughs> um, so I'm just a uh, low level. I kind of understand, but I, I feel like it's contradicting. So may I say back what, what I think I'm hearing is that you, are wondering about the concept of attaching and not attaching and then having that uh, th that expectation on ourselves that we should not be attaching and how to be being is that is that the, the... it seems to be that he's writing um zazen you shouldn't make a goal not Non-achievement. Well, I think maybe it's also helpful to take the should out. We, we're sort of being invited, I think, in practice to notice how, as we go along, how attachment in any form over time can get in the way, can clog the system, can prevent flow, movement, growth. And so it's not that we shouldn't be attached because all of us have some attachments This is because we're human beings here, all of us. And so we have them. And so it's a question of waking up, attending to, becoming awake to over time with practice where we are attached and how that is just noticing it. And eventually 
over time with practice, attachments, some attachments begin to loosen or fall away or don't have the same um, valence strength. So practice, how do you get this? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. You wait, practice is to, to put your faith in it, if that becomes a righteous path for you, is to, to, the, to see if you can allow yourself to entrust the process, even if you don't understand it at all, or not fully yet. And just continue, because it, uh, there's an unfolding that's organic when we're practicing. It happens, and we are graced. Thank you. Thank you. Lisa Elbach has her hand up online. Who? Can I Lisa Elbach. Hi, uh, Lisa, you have, you're the last person. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Luminous Heart. Hi. Uh, thank you for a very beautiful talk. Spoke to me in so many levels. And I'm interested in how the the uh, tying up my camel <laughs> got brought in. And actually, I think it's a very big part of your talk. And then you just were speaking toward it. Yeah. You take care of the camel. You give the camel room in its pasture, but you tie it up <laughs> as part of also opening and saying, I have no idea. And then it comes. I, the, the whole talk was very, very spoke to my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Speak to mind. Thanks. Thank you so much.